Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is producer-engineer Vance Powell. First of all, the album is changing. Actually, the definition of an album is changing. The album really has been in an evolution for a long time. In the vinyl days, it was about 30 to 40 minutes in length, and the reason why was you just couldn't make it any louder, or not all that much louder, without the level dropping, because the level on a record, in other words, the volume of the record, is really attached to how deep the grooves are, and the deeper the grooves, the fewer of them, so the less time that you'll have on an album. So basically, in order for the album to be really nice and hot, we were at 30 to 40 minutes. And it was not uncommon to have 35-minute albums. Eight songs, 35 minutes, no one ever complained, it was just fine. When the CD came out and we had a theoretical limit of 74 minutes, which could be boosted up to 78 minutes, all of a sudden everyone felt like they had to have the 60-minute album. So now there was 15 songs, 18 songs, and you would think that fans would like this, but in fact they didn't. They felt like, well, wait a second, I still only got one or two good songs and the rest is filler, so (laughs) what's the point? So that kind of changed. Now we're back to the early days of the record business where singles count more than anything, thanks to streaming. So as a result, the album has changed significantly as well. Even digital albums have gone down, way down, in recent years. So... We find that hip-hop artists are actually changing how we look upon albums. The biggest one being Drake. Drake released what he called mixtapes instead of albums, which is kind of closer to what was happening on the street at the time. Now his latest project he calls a playlist project. So that's a little hipper and it's a little more contemporary, I would say. On the latest album from Vic Mensa, he's calling it a capsule Now, the best part of this is when you call it something other than an album, that means you're able to do other things. So you're no longer constricted to the 10 songs that everybody thinks an album should be. Now it can be pretty much as few or as many songs as you want in whatever format you want, because since you're no longer calling it an album, people don't have preconceived ideas about it. So this is pretty brilliant. Look for this to change in the future, and we know it's really changed when the Billboard charts change, and they're no longer called the album charts, but that might take a while. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. If you want to learn more about the basics of mixing, sign up for my four-week Music Mixing Primer webinar course. Go to mixingprimer.com to learn more. Also, check out my new Hitmakers Club for access to a powerful online group, all of my courses, monthly workshops and Q&A webinars, core basic training, and much, much more. Go to hitmakersclub.com to find out all about it. Now, the next thing that's happening right before our eyes is that guitar demographics are changing. I've talked to a number of guitar manufacturers over the last few weeks, and I've asked them specifically about the new guitar buyers, and their answers are quite revealing. First of all, today's guitar buyer doesn't want to be a guitar hero, just wants to learn how to play and use it in his music, but doesn't want to learn a lot of technique. So the days of the guitar hero are pretty much over in terms of the people that are buying new guitars today. Now, electric guitar sales are way down, but acoustic guitar sales are up. Amplifiers are way, way down, where pedals are way, way up. 
So this is all kind of changing here, big, big time. Just to show you how much, Gibson Guitar is no longer called Gibson Guitar. It's now called Gibson Brands. And now they label themselves as a lifestyle company, not a musical instrument company, a lifestyle company. They went and they bought Stanton, Serwin Vega, KRK, Tascam, Onkyo, and Philips. Philips, of course, came up with the CD, the whole idea behind the CD, and had the license until it ran out. Now, one of the reasons why Gibson did that is they're almost forced to. The reason why is people don't want to buy high-tech guitars. Gibson has dabbled in this. They've dabbled in the digital guitar. They've dabbled in self-tuning guitars. For the most part, the public just doesn't care. So they can't charge a premium for it. And even though they're charging a lot of money for their high-end guitars, most players that can afford it don't want to go there. In fact, if they're going to spend that kind of money, and we're talking five figures and over, they'd rather buy a used instrument that might go up in value because no one is sure that these new guitars, these new Gibsons especially, are ever going to go up in value. So everything about the guitar that we know is changing and is changing right before our eyes, for better or for worse. But keep an eye because it's not the same and it's going to change even more. My guest today is four-time Grammy winner, producer-engineer Vance Powell. Vance's credits include Chris Stapleton, Jack White, Jars of Clay, Buddy Guy, The White Stripes, Arctic Monkeys, Martina McBride, among many, many others. Vance is one of the few engineers who's made the jump from live sound to the studio, and he talks at length about each in this interview. I spoke with Vance via Skype from his Sputnik Sound studio in Nashville. I want to go back to the beginning when you started. I know you started as a live sound engineer, but w what was like your first gig? Was it like a local band or a club or what? what, what? Yeah, it was, a, it was a local band. You know, I, I, I there was a little band. It's, you know, it, it's kind of a long story, but my uh, a friend of mine worked at an auto upholstery shop and there was a couple guys in the shop there who were in a band. They were older. They were you know, probably in their 30s at that point. Uh, now, they, they were probably in their 40s, and they had, like, you know, 16-year-old kids. And they all had a little garage band. I mean, it was a garage band. They were playing Merle Haggard songs and things. And so my, my buddy went down and started playing with them. And the, the, this group of, like, 40-year-old guys, I mean, I'm maybe 21 at this point, you know, 22, maybe, 20. Oh, yeah, I wasn't even 20. I would have been 18 at this time. And these guys were all, you know, older guys. And they um, they would play. And then after they would play, then, like, their kids would play. And their kids wanted to play Ramon's songs, <laughs> you know. So, like, oh, well, let's hang out with those kids. And uh, so then that band, they kept playing and started to get some gigs. And I started following around with the little PV 600 mixer and to then two of them. And, you know, sure, columns became PV speakers, and then PV speakers became these big Z-bends and, and um, A7s. And, wow. You know, I mean, just the whole thing, you know, it just kind of kept, kept getting bigger and bigger. And there was a studio in my hometown, and I did a session there one day, even though I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, I did a little bit because I had a little 8-track, you know. But, I mean, this was, you know uh, – uh, Alan Heath, AHB, Syncon B desk, 40 channel desk in line. It was a real desk, you know, uh, yeah. 24 bus. Uh, we had a one inch 16 track MX 70s, a pair of them. 
though I never synced them together. Um, and, you know, I, I did that session that day, and the guy who owned it gave me a key and said, come see me tomorrow. And and I said, okay, cool, I'll bring you your key. And he's like, oh, no, 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 that's yours. You're the new engineer. You're better than us. Wow. And I remember, like, I think back on that now, like, I wasn't any good at all. I mean, I know I wasn't any good. I didn't have any idea what I was doing at all. I just sort of had a thought of what this should sound like. And that was more than what they had, <laughs> you know, he was looking for somebody to run the studio cause he didn't really want to run it. He had another job, he had another business. And, you know, so, uh, I took it on and he taught me all the other stuff I needed to know. Sort of. I mean, he taught me a ton of stuff, but at some point it was like, okay, well, you know, uh, I've been reading about this. He's like, Oh, you got to figure that out on your own. You know? So all the, all the, all the things like, you know, cutting tape, splicing tape, editing tape, all that stuff. He's like, yeah, I never do that. Huh. You have to figure that out. You know, what's funny is I hear this same story over and over. I'll ask somebody, well, how'd you get in the business? Oh, there's a studio in my town and the guy didn't really want to run it. I didn't know anything, but I got the key. This occurs more than you would think, or it did occur. I don't know if it does anymore, but it, it did. It's a recurring theme that keeps on coming up here. But hey, good for us yeah. if that happens, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, I think the thing, this was a deal where the studio was, it was in his father's building. His father owned the music store next door. And some people had gone together. It's, you know, it's a small town. I mean, I'm from a small town. And a bunch of people had gone together uh, ostensibly in this sort of like um, Christian music central sort of thought. And they were going to, they were going to, this was like sort of 85, 85. They were kind of like going to like in that praise and worship thing. They were on the front edge of it. And they were like trying to get ahead of it. One of them, his wife was Miss Missouri. So she was really pretty and a good singer. And, and I'm not saying that it was a, scheme because it wasn't really a scheme i don't think but basically this guy got a bunch of people put up a bunch of money and he built a studio and had no idea how to run it how to do anything and made it a commercial entity see that was the key mistake he made instead of just saying well we're just going to do our own thing and try to sell that he was like oh yeah we're open for business well the first band that came in they had no idea how to do anything and they were terrible and so basically it ran for about a year and it, and it failed. And so what happened was um, my friend whose father owned the music store next door, he had a commercial electronics business. Uh, he was doing PA installs and phones and alarm and, you know, all that low voltage stuff. Uh, you know, well, it was the 80s, so we weren't really to networking yet, but cable TV, you know, cable CCTV, all that stuff. And he just went in there and said, I will write you a check and you can distribute this to your investors and just bought it pennies on the dollar, basically. Wow. I mean, I know what he bought. I know. I mean, it was it was a couple hundred grand worth of gear. He paid 50 grand for it. Oh, you know? man. Yeah. It was already in his building and it was already built and it was already done. So he just basically acquired a bunch of gear and it was all in place. And then suddenly he was like, oh, well, now I have to be the engineer. I don't know any more than anybody else does. And so when I came along, I'd been mixing bands for a long, for, you know, a couple of years or so at that time and had done some recording. So, yeah, I kind of understood how it worked. And I wanted to do that. So I got paid five bucks an hour. <laughs> Crazy. 
I didn't realize that you got into recording that early. I thought that you kind of worked your way up the sound ladder, the live sound ladder, and and then moved it's a in. Little bit, it's a little bit like this. You uh, know, like th this ladder was a little bit like this, always kind of, you know, I was always kind of going along doing that. I mean, I, I worked at that studio till 90, and then in 90, I took a job in Springfield, Missouri, uh, at a club. I went to work at this club. It was horrible. It was a front for a cocaine operation. Mm. It was terrible. And, you know, I worked 11 a.m. to 4 a.m. every day, six days a week. That was my gig. You know, I was young. I was stupid. We built, we, we did a lot of shows. I, I did dance shows, like, you know, like raves. And I mean, it was stupid. But I moved up to Springfield to be near this guy, Lou Whitney, who I wanted to go to work for. And basically in the course of a year, I, I talked myself into a gig with him and I quit and I went to work for Lou. And so at, at his studio and on the road with him, because uh, he was he was in a band that was the op the act, not the opening act, but they were the opening act and the touring band for Dave Alvin and the Blasters. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so so it was kind of a, always like I want I want to always be making records. I want to be making records. I want to be making records. But I'm really good live sound engineer. So I'll go do that on the weekend. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I mean, I wasn't making a lot of money. I mean, I made five bucks an hour working at the studio in, in Joplin, where I'm from. And then I also worked there during the day. So for, for years, I worked eight hours a day there, pull, pulling cable, you know, and commercial electronics. And then in the evening, I worked at the studio. And the weekends, I didn't have a life. You know, when the when the time came uh, for me to move to Nashville, because I got a job at Tamu Annette, it's a long story, but I got a job at Tamu Annette and I started touring with her. And it was like, hey, you need to live in Nashville. I was like, great, I'll move to Nashville. Studios everywhere. And I moved here and no one wanted to hire me. You know, I was 27 years old and, and I was like, I had been working for Lou for three years or so and the studio and job for three years or so. I mean, I thought I knew it all. And really... I knew a lot. I just didn't know a lot about all the things that are important here in Nashville. And so, you know, part of the thing here is you got to work your way up. Yeah. You know, and at that time, too, the other thing was the studio world, the studio, the, the you know, like kind of like in the 40s, you know, the studio system of the 40s in Hollywood, the, the Nashville studio system was here. You became an intern. You worked an intern for a little while, and then maybe you got to be the night guy. And then you were the night guy for a while. Then maybe you got to be an assistant and you did that for a couple of years or so. And then maybe you got to start doing, you know, the throwaway sessions, vocal overdubs or whatever, you know, it's a long time for you to get into the mainstream of the Nashville thing. And there weren't, you know, there's eight guys engineering all the records. Basically, it's still that way to be honest with you. And that's no knock on them. I love, I, they're all really great and I love them. They do their thing. I'm not, I, I figured out pretty quickly. I wasn't very interested in that. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And so, you know, I moved here, I went to work for Tammy and then, um, I did a few records still back in Missouri, but had no luck getting into any Nashville studios at all. And how I got in was so totally the roundabout way. I had, um, I'd gone to work for John McBride, who of course owns Blackbird. Yeah, he didn't own it at the time, but I went to work for him. And while I worked for him, uh, Martina, his wife, uh, got pregnant, and I went out. And I did a tour with this band called Jars of Clay, and that led to five years of working with them. 
And uh, in about year four, they asked me to do a Christmas record, just a little six-week Christmas record, right? Yeah. That took 11 and a half months, <laughs> all of 2001, basically. And we did this record. It was a Grammy winner, and it, it, you know, it was a gold record. And all during that time was when John was talking about Blackbird, talking about building Blackbird. He didn't know what it was called then. I mean, it was for a while it was the pool house because he was going to use – the tennis court at his house and put a pool house, pool yeah. house over it. Yeah, yeah. And then they, after they inspected it, he was going to tear down the whole inside and put a studio, you know, like <laughs> in the dark of night, you know? Um, but then, you know, he got smart and figured out that, you know, at some point some bass player is going to get stuck in his yard at two in the morning. And, you know, he didn't really want people at his house. I mean, he wanted him and Martina to be there. But his ambitions were bigger than just a booth in their garage, because that was what we at first said. Why don't we just put it? You know, they had this big, huge four-car garage, and they had an apartment above it. I'm like, why don't you just put it up there? Like, ah, oh, well, you know, we might want to track something. Like, okay, well, you know, yeah. got to go somewhere else for that, you know. And so, uh, in 2002, in January, he he called me. He's like, where are you at? I'm like, I just so happened to be at that point in time up in Nashville here. And I said, oh, I'm, you know, up in Nashville. And he's like, well, come by this address. I want to look at this studio. So I came by, and that was Blackbird. And um, about a month and a half, I mean, he bought it right away. Like a week later, he bought it and um, started tearing it up. And about 15th or 17th of March, he called, and he said, this isn't going fast enough for me. I need somebody who knows what they're doing. So come on. I want you to, I want to hire you away from, you know, Claire, basically. I was working for Claire Brothers. And uh, that 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 lasted eight and a half years. Wow! I didn't realize that you were there for that long. I knew you were there for a bit, but that's cool. Oh yeah, eight and a half years. I was I was a chief engineer. I I was involved in every single part of that whole building, everything. Why did you leave there? Was it just more opportunities, better opportunities? Well, if I was to be a hundred percent honest, I would sound. Uh, I would sound probably like an asshole. And that was that my uh, vision of what the studio was supposed to be for me wasn't the vision of what John thought the studio was supposed to be for him. Um, basically, it just came down to, uh, I think the studio really loved me being there, making sure everybody was cool, but they weren't very, very, cool about me being there working oh, you know yeah. what i mean yeah yeah and so so it's kind of like well your job is this but you really want to go do that but for you to do that we think you can't do this which yeah. is was silliness um and so you know john and i have talked about it it's it's a uh, i think that it's uh it's a bummer because I think if he would have supported me more, I'd still be there and I wouldn't be here. I would be over there. I'd have my own room over there. I would work there. I'd be a great, big, huge proponent for Blackbird for all, for all time, because a lot of what I did is still, I mean, most, I mean, a lot of what I did and a lot of myself, I put into that place. The problem was, is that, you know, I think John wanted, he wanted it to be about, about what he was doing as an engineer and 
and bringing in all these other very important people to the studio. And that's the important part. Not so much what you want. You know what I mean? Like what I want. Yeah. What I want for my career. So I trained a bunch of assistants. I um, put in a lot of systems, made things work every single day. You know, Blackbird never, in the time I was there, never had to give a day away because something didn't work. Wow. You know, ever. I mean, I, I was there every morning before tracking sessions, making sure the rigs were good, making sure the rigs were fast, making sure things were bad, where things were uh, erased. You know, like, I mean, like making sure the drives were formatted. Uh, we had a 30 drive, four and a half or 6.8 terabyte SAN system at one point. Right. Yeah. And, and that's a big sand. Sure. That's is. a serious sand. And that was backed up in two buildings continually on, on 32 LTO tape drives, 32 tape, 16 tape, tape drives, just backing up constantly all the time in two different buildings, you know, stuff like that, that stuff that people don't ever see, but that's, that's important. Sure is. There's yeah. a, there's a, I mean, um, there's a Rascal Flats record, which is sort of like a bummer. I like there's a Rascal Flats record that would have been lost, which is kind of like, whoop, well, that's kind of a, you know, military intelligence. Uh, but um, I love those guys. But I mean, I'm not a fan. You know, whatever. They're nice guys. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe cut that out. Yeah. Uh, there's a Rascal Flats record that would be lost um, if I didn't have the backup running the way it was running, <laughs> because an intern at another studio plugged a firewire. Uh, 800 cable in upside down oh man and he plugged it into the ma that was the master and then he plugged the safety in upside down oh. right and then plugged that upside down into the mac it blew every firewire port there was yeah now while they were figuring all that out dan huff called me and he said do you have this file do you have this backed up and i said yeah and we you know 25 minutes later i delivered a drive to him that was an hour and 20 but you know it's impressive you know i mean basically yeah we had it backed up it makes so much sense though why they wanted to keep you there why john wanted to keep you doing what you're doing because you're valuable doing that although i could see where that would be stifling after a while when you're creative well, you you want to be able to go be creative more times than not and that i i was hired under I mean, I took the job. Now, see, here's the deal. I worked for Claire Brothers. I was a front of house engineer. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I was pretty good at it. I mean, I think I was really good at it. And I had this amazingly creative position where I was given carte blanche to do whatever I wanted to do by the band. Whatever I wanted the front of house to sound like, they were down with it. Wow. I was literally producing the band at front of house. I mean, if I wanted to distort the drums, I distorted the drums. If I wanted to if I wanted to put all the guitars on one side and all the keyboards on the other side of the PA for a song, I'd do it. I did it. I mean, we did all kinds of cool stuff. And the band was like, keep doing it. Whatever you're doing, keep doing. It. That's why they wanted me to do this record. So so to suddenly come in and then be like, okay, well, let me teach people, let me teach people how Pro Tools works. Yeah, you know, yeah. let me uh, let me show you how this compressor works. Let me log in these thousand microphones that we just bought. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, it was just I was building I was building I was the IT guy. I built servers. I ran servers. I did video. I did. You know, I did all this stuff, which is all fine and dandy. It's all things that I can do. Not feeding this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. Right. My, 
And so in 2006, around 2006, it kind of came to a head and, and it was just, you know, that, that moment happened where I, I had to, um, I had to sort of do the deal where you, you beg, uh, forgiveness over permission. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like I'm going to do this and, and, and you're not going to like it, but it doesn't matter to me. I'm going to do it. So I'm going to do it regardless of what it costs. And, um, and strangely, I think the thing is, you know, uh, I mean, John and I, we, I mean, we go back a long, long, long time now. I think he sort of likes that kind of punk rock sort of mentality of, yeah, man, fuck it. Do whatever you need to do, man. You do what you got to do. Do it. Yeah, yeah. But it's him being the, you know, like, do it, except unless you're doing it to me, you know. And so we we had a long talk about it. And I just like, you you got to let me do this. You know, you got to like, I have built this studio for you. And everybody loves it, but me, yeah. you know? Is that when you, know? you started Sputnik Sound then? Well, yeah, Sputnik Sound sort of was started a long time before, uh, back in the back in the Jars of Clay days. That was, Sputnik Sound originally was the guitar player for, for Jars of Clay. It was his basement. That was what he called it. And, and then my partner, currently Mitch Dane, had brought all his gear. This is these are all true great stories in, in in many ways. In 2000, Mitch's wife kicked him out of their laundry room. <laughs> they had a laundry room, and he had like some ADATs and a 001 and a bunch of like like you know, K K88 and like some sort of big keyboard thing and some DX7s and he had a bunch of shit in their laundry room, and she finally was like. I need you out of the laundry room. And so Steve was building the studio in his basement. So Steve and him said, well, well, Steve didn't have any gear. So I was like, okay, well, we'll put all our gear into the studio. So they built the studio. And then in 2001, when they asked me to do the Christmas record, they're like, yeah, we're going to try out the new studio. So we worked on that for a couple weeks on Mitch's gear. And it was like, we need some more stuff. So the band basically – got an advance from their label on this record, which is funny because that Christmas record never came out and never was ever, ever, ever done. Uh, this Christmas record um, came out and, uh, or it was getting done and, and, and basically we got this advance and then we went on and did this other record, but that was Sputnik. So then, so then Sputnik became this thing with Mitch and, and Steve at his house. Well, then Steve's wife finally said enough. I'm tired of drums banging under my floor. You guys got to get out. So Mitch moved up here into Nashville, just down the street, to uh, ha the House of Blues. They had a House of Blues had a house next to the studio. <laughs> excuse me. That was uh, where they did all their accounting. And and so he moved into there. Jakir King took over to the other side, and then they made it a little bit bigger. And they added a little tracking room to it. And then Jakir left. And so around 2006, he left in 2000, early 2006. So Mitch and him were there from probably 2003 to 2006 together. Jakir left in 2006, moved to his house. He built a new house and put a studio in it. I was at Blackbird, and I was doing a record uh, from a client of mine from Tucson, a really cool country record. Richard Dodd mixed it. It's, it's an amazingly great record. 
And um, we had at Blackbird, we had a tech who was who will remain nameless uh, because to save the not so innocent, who honestly was just a fucking asshole. And um, he thought he was really important. And he really thought he ran the whole studio. And him and I, I mean, I, I quit six or seven times because of him, you know, McBride would always yell at him and, you know, bring me and get me back. But uh, I was there, I was in Studio A, I did a record for a month in Studio A, and at the end of it, we ended on a Sunday night, and nothing was booked for Monday, it was a maintenance day for Studio A, because of course, you know, I'm sort of like a part of the calendar and all. And so I had my racks, my outboard gear, because I just have a bunch of, a bunch of kind of what you see behind you back here, is a bunch of just old tape echoes and weird shit of my own that I had in racks, rolling racks, that I had taken on the road with me for years. And um, he threw a big fit about him being uh, in the back of the control room to me. And I just said, you know what? They'll never be here again. And I rolled him out the street. I rolled him out to the street, down to the end of the street, down two blocks, down to Sputnik, pushed him across the yard, rolled him up into the front. And I told Mitch, all right, I'll take over the back room back there. And, I ne and then I never brought my gear to Blackbird again. I never did. And, and, and then I, that's when I went in with, with Mitch and I would just work, I would go to work at, I'd be at work at nine at Blackbird. I'd work till five thirty six. I'd go to, go to Sputnik. I'd work from six to midnight and I'd go home. And so, you know, you do that for a little while. It gets a little tiring. Yeah. It was, it was hard. And, uh, around that time is when I kind of crossed paths with Jack White and, you know, it, it's kind of a long story, but he he asked me for a piece of gear. Blackbird didn't have it. I had one. I came I came to the old place. I say here, but it was the old place, and got it. Took it to him, and then we just talked a little bit. He asked me where the studio was, where my place was. I told him, and then uh, one day on a Saturday, he just walked in, like, "Hey, man, what are you doing?" And I kind of hung out, and then he called me to do um, this project with him in Danger Mouse. Uh, it says Rome record. It's really beautiful. And it was just, we were just doing vocals and some keyboards and stuff. And we worked a couple days on that. And then he asked me to mix a, um, white stripes, uh, Spanish language single. And we had a lot of fun with it. It was, it was, um, it was, it was something that Joe Chigarelli had recorded. It was great. Um, but complicated for a bunch of reasons. And, uh, it, it was awesome. It was a lot of fun. And um, then he asked me to do the Rack and Tours record, mm -hmm. do the Consolers Ultimately. And this is sort of where I had to sort of ask for forgiveness instead of permission. Because I, I don't think I would have, I, I think it would have been, I think it would have been contentious um, if I would have just said, hey, I, you know, do you mind if I do this? Yeah. I don't think John would have been mad at me for doing it. I just think it, it just would have, it would have been weird. And I just said, I'm doing it. I took vacation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and just vacation and did the record, you know. So uh, from there, you know, from there, I started working a lot with Jack. And um, finally, McBride and I kind of came to the realization that, you know, I needed to move on. You know, I needed to, you know, that Raconteur's one record won a Best Engineered Album Grammy. You know, I, I was doing a lot of work with Jack. I was doing, I, I, had, uh, I was up for four 
one year for Buddy Guy for the Raconteurs. And it was just, I just needed, I needed that. And not that, I just needed to be creative. I needed to work yeah. and, and start trying to make music. So I just started booking as much stuff as I possibly could at Sputnik and doing a lot of local stuff. And, you know, and a bunch of cool things came out. Plus, I was busy at Jack's and it's just kind of gone from there. You know, I mean, uh, I did a old. I mean, I produced an old '97s record last year. I just did a radio remix this morning. Um, I finished a record that I did earlier in this year. Yesterday, I worked on overdubs for one. So it's just you know, I just now I'm just literally busy almost every single day. So very cool. It's good. Yeah, very oh, cool. Oh, good. But it's, but it's you know, I, I joke about this um, uh, because you know I'm like an overnight success you know, at 45. Yeah. You know it I mean? just took 20 years like, to get there. Right. Like, like, yeah. I'm like an overnight success at 42, you know, at 42, I was successful, you know? Yeah. And, and so, you know, yeah, it's yeah. a long time. Well, I've been gone from blackbirds here since 2010. Uh, so, you know, 100% totally on my own, uh, for the last six years, you know, seven years now. And, um, you know, John and I, you know, John, I I think he would love to still have me there, but I think he realizes that that's, that would, that, you know, yeah, I mean, that, that would never happen. Couldn't happen now. And I work there every now and then. I still like going over there. It's an amazing place. Amazing facility. Well, especially if you're so busy on your own stuff, it's hard to go back to working on somebody else's uh, dream. Yeah. When I you mean, have I've, done records. I've, done, I've done several records over there over the last you know, five or six years, yeah, but yeah. you know, it's great, but you know, I got everything I need here and I get it. I want to talk to you for a little bit about, there's a video about you deconstructing a mix. The sound on sound thing. Yeah. Yep. And what I noticed in there is you were, you had your methods of using leakage to your advantage, which is very classic but I'm wondering if mm -hmm. a lot of that came from your live sound experience. Of course it did. Yeah, I just don't worry about it. I mean, we we are in a we are in a weird place in music production. Uh, I'm not going to say that everything that I believe or how I tout it or whatever is right. It's just right for me. Yeah, you know what I mean. But but if you get a band now, see here's the deal. Most of the time. The most of the time way everything is recorded now, it's all recorded in these little pieces. So like, let's get this great drum sound. I mean, even down to the drum sound. Like I've heard of people and I know people do this who record the drums and then they record the cymbals. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I just, I sort of think to myself, you know, uh, what would the Beatles do? Would they do that? No, of course they wouldn't do it, but maybe they would if they had unlimited tracks and all the time in the world. Maybe those records would be unbelievable, even more unbelievable than they are. Maybe they wouldn't be. You know, I, I don't know. So now everybody's about getting like everything to sound so perfect in its world. And instead of it needs to sound like music. Yeah. And the only way that music happens is if people play music together in the room. They, they can see each other or they hear each other. And, and there's a thing that happens when when the guitar amps are in with the drums and the drums are in with the bass and the bass is on the drum track and, and everything's all sort of happening at once. It's, it's this energy that is completely impossible to recreate. Can't recreate it. Um, 
you know, for better or for worse, I mean, certain records feel like they're played at one time, you know. Uh, Rolling Stones records, to me, I always loved how it all felt like it was just this, you know, sort of lumbering, kind of weird robot bouncing down the down the street with, you know, things falling off. But it sounded so glorious that, you know, it was amazing. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and the only way that happens, the only way that happens is just everybody kind of doing their thing, playing their deal, seeing each other. And then, yeah, sure, there were overdubs. Sure, there were cool licks. Sure, there were things that weren't in there. But, you know, the foundation, the frame, the wheels, the transmission, the motor are all – the thing that gets the body down the road. You know what I mean? You can yeah. put the shit on the body. You can paint the car. But I mean, it's just that thing. It has, it feels to me like it has to move together. So unless I'm going to do something wacky, which I've done, like, you know, like b build a drum set out of cardboard boxes and trash cans, you know, and then make that a sound. Okay, cool. Play that. Great. That's awesome. All right, cool. Now let's take eight bars of that and then and then uh, four bars of that other thing you did. And let's take this and put this together. And now there's this 12 bar thing that happens that repeats every 12 bars, you know. Yeah. Okay, cool. Now play over that. I mean, that's the kind of thing I would do more than like, okay, let me get these great. Uh, let me take eight bars of your drums and then loop that a hundred times and then okay now let's get the guitars all right cool now let's get the bass all right cool now i want you to do fills right here over the guitar bass and drums you know like no no let's not do that let's like have everybody play together so it feels like that again i'm not saying that that is right that's just more right for me i'm with you 100 percent. but here, yeah. here's the thing though you can do that with very seasoned musicians you can do it with musicians who've been around for a while. It's much more difficult with younger musicians who haven't got enough time under their belt playing together. Have you found well, maybe that? They should, maybe they should practice more. Yeah, maybe they should. I mean, I mean, here's here's the thing. Here's 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 the deal. We're we're talking about we're talking about the lowest common denominator issue, and that is is you know the old the old now old joke is uh uh how was that take oh it sucked we've got pro tools come on in yeah that's the norm that's the norm now now it's not man let's get the take let's how great that sounds you know that was a great take you guys are well rehearsed we played it together it feels great that's the take now it's just like you know let's play it a few times we'll playlist it you know We'll get the band to play a few times. Now we just get the drummer to play that a few times. Now we just get the bass player to play it a few times. Now we get the guitar players to play. Now get the guitar player to double it. Now get the other guitar player to play it. And and all the while, the whole idea is if you screw up, you know, well, we just undo. We just punch in, you know, and it's, and it's this. Play, stop. Play, you know, play, record, stop. Play, record, stop. Not play, record, stop. Rewind, talk about it. Yeah stop play now it's just play stop record play play record stop play record stop play record stop record stop record stop you know whatever it is it's just boom 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 everything's about time 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 fast let's get this done let's get this done okay cool yeah i kind of played that pretty good can you line it up for me yeah yeah right yeah sure i can just because we can doesn't mean we should 
That's that's the problem with DAW based recording. We can and so we do. But but we shouldn't. Yeah, you know, a lot of the problems too is I think you have engineers that sometimes edit with their eyes rather than their ears. So something can sound perfect, but they'll say, well, okay, we still have to line it up. And, and then all of a sudden you lose the personality of it when that happens. Yeah. I, I've had, I've, I've had sessions come to me where the overheads are lined up with the snare drum. Yeah. Oh. Like in other words, the overhead hit has been, has been adjusted to the snare. Yeah. So now every time there's a rack Tom, it's early. Yeah. Yeah. It's flaming. Because, you know, it's like, no, 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 don't line any of that up. Don't don't line up the room mics. Don't line, no, leave all that alone. Leave it alone. It's supposed to be that way. Yeah. But, you know, but people like, I mean, I can't tell you how many records come to me. If I said 70%, I'd probably be, that'd be low. Come to me to record it elsewhere where the overheads are out of phase. Yeah, yeah, right. Like just 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 hit the face button while the drummer's playing with the snare drum, snare and overhead. Oh wow, that sounds really big and huge. <laughs> cool. Or or well, it's kind of thin. I don't know. The snare sounds kind of thin. Have you tried the overhead? What's well, not a phase? I clicked it. Oh well, that doesn't matter. Oh wow, listen to that. Yeah, it's three and a half feet or more away from the snare drum or whatever. You know, however many far it is. Of course, it's not in time. But it's also not in phase because it's not in time. Yeah. Well, we should line it up. No, no, don't do that. And everything's fucked. So, you know, again, we're back to this deal. One thing you said earlier about the younger, these younger guys, you know, who can't play. I mean, that's the problem. Yeah. The problem is they have to learn how to play. And the other thing is we have A&R people who, who go see bands. They're not good, but they might have a, a catchy song. And they're like, yeah, cool. Let's put them with, you know, producer A. And producer A comes in. He goes, oh, yeah, well, that song's pretty good. All right, cool. Here's the hired drummer who's going to play with you. So your, your drummer's fired. Said he'd put him in the lobby. Make him go get pizza or something. We're going to cut this track. Here's the drummer. Okay, cool. Well, that's great. Well, now the bass needs to be lined up. Now the guitars are all, you know, I mean, it's – it's the whole deal of no, maybe what maybe what you guys should do is go rehearse for a while. Yeah, right. Right. Now go rehearse. And 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 we don't have that culture anymore. We don't we don't have the culture of of you know, back when I don't I mean, I don't even know when record labels I can't even remember when they had money, but back when they had money, it was a deal where, okay, it costs a lot of money to make this record. All this gear is expensive. It costs money to make records. So because it costs money to make records, we only spend money on records we think are going to sell, not on everything yeah. under the sun. Yeah. So so somebody vetted the bands. The studio price vetted a lot of the bands because it was expensive. Tape was expensive. You had to buy tape. You had to buy the engineer. The engineer. You know, it was expensive. So, so only the best talent and the best bands got recorded. Now we all know that's bullshit because there's some really bad bands that got recorded. But but okay, fine. Some bad bands got recorded. But most of the time that the bad shit got vetted out. Now I've got a laptop and I've got an Apollo twin and I've got a microphone with Phantom Power and a DI. I'm gonna go make a record and I'm gonna put it out. Now that doesn't because I have those things, that doesn't mean it's a good recording. It also doesn't mean it's a 
good band or it's a good anything, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, it, for it, sure. Coffee. Uh, it doesn't mean any of that. It just it just means I can do it. Again, just because I can doesn't exactly mean I should. Believe me, you don't want to hear my solo record. <laughs> no. Well, okay. It sounds like some sort of weird, perverted, like Russian opera over cat squealing. <laughs> you know. Okay, a couple more questions. I, I know uh, yeah. you're busy, so I don't want to keep you too long. The, Maybe as long as you the racks with uh, all that wonderful outboard gear behind you, and I know you have a console. How much mm-hmm. of your mixing is done in the box? Yeah, I mean, uh, I have. I'm a you know, I'm a diehard UAD fan in Dorsey, artist in Dorsey. Uh, I'm on their beta team. I, you know, uh, I love everything they do. Um, so just because I have a console doesn't mean I shouldn't use their tools. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? So, I mean, I have I have a beautiful pair of 1176Fs right there uh, in, in here. In here, I have hundreds of them. Yeah. You know, do these sound great? They absolutely sound great. I use them on everything. But I use them judiciously in mixing because I have so many here. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, I mean, I've got a pair of 33609s down here. I've got however many I need in here. I've got a very mu in here. i got however many I need in here. I mean, you see where I'm going with this. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so you're not a purist yeah. about it. No, 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 no. Use whatever tools you got. I mean, I mean, do I, I mean, the closest thing to mixing in the box that I do is I will, I will put up a blend in the, the blend, balance, EQ, effects and things on the desk and then automate in the box. Yeah. That's how the Chris Stapleton record, that's what we did with Stapleton record. Excuse me. So it didn't mix here. We mixed over at RCA studio a at Dave Cobb's place. He has a 32 channel API. So I just broke out the whole record into the eight. uh, There's a six drum tracks and then some room tracks a couple tracks of room mics in the room and then uh, those six drum tracks and then uh 16 really eight stereo stems of the of the other things piano keyboards organ on on one two tracks you know a stem stereo stem um a, a steel guitar on stereo stem or steel guitar on one and harmonic on the other acoustic guitar on stereo stem uh, Chris's guitar on in stereo, his vocal in stereo, and and Morgan's background vocal in stereo with effects. I did all that in the box, but on the desk, using the EQ on the desk, and using as much of the desk as I can. And then what I did is once I got the balance that worked kind of softly through each song, like kind of going through them one at a time, I taped the faders in place. I physically put tape down and taped them to the, and then with that, and then it sat that way for the whole rest of the record. And then anything that I changed, I had a little artist mix thing. It's over here. Yeah. And I had that and I had the iPad control. And if I was uh, at the desk, I'd hit play and I would, I would set up VCA masters and pro tools. And I just mixed it like I'm mixing sitting here at my SSL with VCA masters and then, and then some individual tracks, you know, that yeah. needed it. But, you know, just 
whatever we needed to do. But so that's sort of like me saying, yeah, no, I never mix in the box, but I do because I get records all the time. I only, I only use 32 channels in my SSL. It's a 48, but I only use 32 for inputs because I use the, the back 16 and the top faders, the small faders for effects returns and parallel buses. And yeah. Things. Yeah, yeah. And then I use sometimes I use some of these others for parallel buses too, but but not very often. Just usually the back that back thirty two channels. So thirty two inputs on that, you know, and then the back thirty two, and um, you know, and I I automate the faders. It's you know it's VCA automation. I set at the middle center section. I do most of my work in the center. A little bit on the faders individually if I need the if I need to, and then I save it over there on the computer and you know. Yeah, yeah. I have to recall it. My assistant, I have an assistant. You just missed him here a minute ago. Mike Fahey, he's awesome. He works with me every day. I never work without him. He's, he I never, ever, ever, ever work without him. And um, uh, because I want him here and I want him to be my right hand. I want him to, I'm training him, you know? I mean, yeah. I want him someday. I want him someday to buy all this shit, you know, <laughs> when it's worth more money and then I can just retire. Uh, but I, I want him to be here to be a part of this. And I want him to be my, you know, my, he's my assistant, but he's my partner in this endeavor of mixing. So he can, he can put a mix up on this desk and recall it in about 20 minutes. Wow. And repass. So That's it's easy. That's pretty awesome. As compared a, to over here, you can't really see it, but over over there, uh, there's a um, custom FileMaker Pro database. Yeah, like you said, you can't I'm sure you can't see it, but there's a custom FileMaker Pro database, and that database is all the patching, all the interconnect, everything outside the console. That database takes care of for every song. That's brilliant. And it's on an iPad. There's an iPad. Um, okay, last question. What's the best piece of business advice, music business advice, that maybe somebody imparted to you or you learned along the way? Oh, I got it. Um, the best piece of advice I was ever given was given to me by Richard Dodd. And he said to me, uh, don't be afraid to monetize yourself. He also said the, – the first thing he said was this, though. He said, uh, don't ever do anything for free because if you do it for free, whatever it is you do is worth nothing. Yeah. Um, that goes for work, you know, doing things for friends, you know, mixing things for friends, you know, do, doing things for a band that you like. Um, it's worth nothing to them. Because they paid nothing for it. So don't be afraid to monetize yourself. Uh, don't be afraid to say what you think you're worth. Even if you're not, you know, the market will correct you. Yeah, yeah, you, know? Right. you know what I mean? The market will correct you. The market will say to you, uh, no, you're, you're, you know, you're not worth that much a day. Um, or the, or because you, you, then you just, you'll suddenly price yourself out of work. Um, by the same token, if you price yourself high, people love telling people how expensive you are. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, people love it. They love saying, 
I care about this record so much that I paid X thousands of dollars to, to, to mix it. Yeah. I paid, you know, I paid Bobby, you know, hundred thousand dollars to mix that record. Yeah. Yeah. Like those were the days. If uh, only, huh? But you know what I mean? Like, yeah. If only, uh, you know, I, people love that. They love telling people and they love feeling like they've paid their hard earned money to somebody to get the thing that they want, especially if you deliver it. If it's wham, bam, you really blow them away. Doesn't matter how much you paid. Unless they paid, they're, it's worth every penny. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, so, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a hard one. A hard one for me. I, I spent years and years managing myself and, um, I left so much money on the table because I, I would feel bad about saying, look, man, you know, uh, I really need a, I don't know, thousand bucks to mix this record, you know? <laughs> and they'd be like, Oh yeah. Well, well, you know, that's pretty high. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> okay. You know what I mean? You yeah. Know, yeah, like, yeah. Like, oh. You know, I mean, it's, there's nothing, the, the worst feeling in the world is when you go, well, you know, I, I think it's going to be um, X thousand dollars. And people go, great. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Dang it. You know, like, <laughs> I could have said X times 2,000. Yeah. You know, and they would have gone, great. You know, you know what I mean? It's like yeah. leaving money on the table is like the worst feeling ever. That being said, you know, sometimes, you know, karma is a, karma is a crazy little thing. You know, you, <laughs> you never know when that thing that you did for that guy you know turns into something later that's really awesome i loaned jack white a uh, a spring reverb i mean i didn't have to yeah i could just said yeah no we don't we don't have one sorry you know but i was like no i've got one it's a block away i'll go get it i walked out i got in my car i drove a block away i walked in and got it i put it in my car i walked back i gave it to him and you know that that led to eight years of working with it. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you just never know. Sometimes yeah. that was free. I didn't rent it to him. Yeah. You know, so I don't know. Uh, don't work for free. Make sure, make sure your work is always paid for somehow. I mean, I think we've all done work for pizza and beer. Yeah. You know, at least somebody paid for pizza and beer. <laughs> you right. Know? You know at least I mean? you got something out of it, right? For more about Vance, go to SputnikSound.com. That's Sputnik Sound, all one word, S-P-U-T-N-I-K, sound, S-O-U-N-D, one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at BobbyOwnerCircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to BobbyOsinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to BobbyOwnerCircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, and Google Play. At BobbyOsinski.com and BobbyOwnerCircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. <laughs>